Well, church, I'm glad you're here. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm one of the pastors here at Genesis Church, and I want to extend a warm welcome to you, whether it's your first time or maybe it's your first time in a long time, or if this is just what you do on Sunday morning and you noticed the parking lot was a little more crowded this morning. Uh, whoever you are, I- I'm thankful that you're here, and I've been praying for you this week, and my prayer for you has been that there would be something, no matter where you are uh, on your journey, that there would be something Uh, that the Lord has for you today. You know, our mission at Genesis Church is helping people find their way back to God, and we believe every one of us are somewhere on that journey. Hey, uh, 18 years ago in Chicago, Illinois, there was a public debate about the resurrection. There was a public debate featuring two experts in their field. Uh, Frank Zindler was a spokesman for American Atheists Incorporated, and and, uh, William Craig was a Christian with a PhD in theology, and the two were invited to meet on the stage and debate uh, the truths of Christianity. And they were, it, the debate was held in front of a crowd of 8,000 people. And then it was broadcast on several radio stations so thousands more could hear. And at the end of the debate, now the crowd was made up of professed atheists, agnostics, but also Christians, both new and, and uh, longtime Christians. And after the, ba- the debate, the crowd was asked to vote. And, they, and 82% of them agreed that the case for Christianity was the stronger case. And because of that debate, 47 people in the crowd that night gave their lives to Christ. Now, as far as we know, zero people gave their lives to atheism that night, okay? But um, when asked by the presenters why people thought the case for Christianity was so much stronger, many of them cited the details behind the resurrection of Jesus, that... uh, They just thought the evidence for the resurrection was so compelling and overwhelming. What was it about that debate that was so impactful? Well, people got to see that there is something special about Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb. That's Mary Magdalene's experience, the one that Ashley read about a few minutes ago. Uh, You know, she had spent time with Jesus. She grew to love him. She uh, found him there at the cross. She was there when he was crucified. And she's the one that discovered the empty tomb. And God gave her this wonderful opportunity to encounter the resurrected Jesus and to be one of the first messengers of his good news. Same thing for Peter and John and the other disciples. Some of them were there at the cross. They not only grew to love and trust him, but they saw him crucified. They mourned on Saturday when their friend was gone, but then on Sunday, they got to meet a resurrected Jesus. And how did it impact them? Well, they spent the rest of their lives telling others about this message. In fact, they were so convinced that what had happened actually happened that most of the disciples, all of them except John, in fact, gave their life in spreading this message of Jesus. And in fact, when I was finding my way back to God, that was a big part of my story, Like, I was wondering, I'm looking and investigating, like, what of the Bible can be true? And I kind of focused my attention on the resurrection, and I realized that these ordinary unschooled men who had spent time with Jesus, who were so selfish and timid when they walked with him, how did they become so bold and brave in their faith afterwards so much that they would give their lives for it? The only conclusion I could come to was that the resurrection really happened. It's true. There's something amazing about Jesus, the cross, and the empty tomb. And Jesus is not only the hope of people like Mary Magdalene and the disciples of Jesus at the time. He's our hope. He's the hope for this church. He's uh, the hope for you and me. He's the hope, I believe, Jesus is the only hope for this weary, broken world. And uh, because you're here today, I want to tell you that he's your hope too. 
And you may not be in a place where you're ready to accept that yet, or maybe you don't believe that, but I believe that God has you here for a reason today, and I believe part of that reason is you might see that your hope is in Jesus, and that you might get exposed to the potential of what he could do in your life if you would just let him. So today I want to spend a few minutes talking with you about uh, what the resurrection means means to us today, and to do that, I want to go back to a story that happened before Jesus was crucified. So if you've got your Bibles, turn them to John chapter 8. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some Bibles on the table in the back of the room, and you, you are free to take one of those as a gift to you. We want you to be able to read uh, God's Word with us. We are reading through the book of John as a church together this year, and if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be hard for you to join us. So grab one of those and take it. But we're going to be in John chapter 8 as I share a story of something that happened, as I said, before Jesus died. But it's an amazing story that demonstrates the power of Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb and what it can do for anyone. We're going to see Jesus interact with this woman who gets, she gets found out. Let's just say it that way. How many of you know what it's like to be found out? Anybody ever been caught in something maybe you weren't excited about? Um, I know what it's like to be found out. Are there any golfers in the room? Anybody play golf? Yeah, a few of you. I used to play golf. I sold my clubs about nine or 10 years ago. As soon as I tell you this story, you'll probably understand why. I was not a very good golfer. But I loved, uh, for 21 years before I became a pastor, I worked in corporate America, and the company that I worked for hosted a golf tournament every Good Friday. So I loved Easter weekend, but Good Friday's pretty early in the year if you're playing golf, and so you don't really get a chance. Usually, I never got a chance to play golf before Good Friday. So I didn't want to be found out as not a good golfer, so I would always, uh, once or twice before Good Friday, I'd head to the driving range and practice. And I remember one particular Good Friday, it was kind of cloudy, a little bit drizzly, it was cold, so I knew the driving range would be empty. That's always an important element for me to go to the driving range. I don't want people watching me when I'm swinging. And so I go to the driving range, I drive there at lunch, and I get out my clubs, I get my bucket of balls, and I got my clubs, and I'm all ready to go. And of course, when you get to the driving range, you always pull out what club? Any golfers? The driver. I always go right for the driver. You always go right for the driver. Doesn't care how good you are with the irons, and especially if you're going to play with a group of people, they're watching you when you're in the tee box, right? And they're, they, nobody cares once you get beyond that. So I get out my driver, I take a couple practice swings, and in walks another guy to the driving range. And this guy's got his stuff together. You know, he's got his nice bag full of ping clubs that look brand new. He's, he's got the outfit. He's, you can tell that he's either a really good golfer or he's really rich and wants to pretend to be a good golfer. But whatever he is, he walks up, there's like 30 bays in this driving range, and he walks up, and where does he set up? In the bay right next to mine, so that when I'm getting ready to swing, I'm looking right at him, like right next to me, 30 bays. They're all empty. He sits up right next to me, and so I thought, I don't want to get found out because I'm not a very good golfer, right? And so um, I decide what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait for him to set up and swing, and then I'll take a swing, and that way he'll never see me hit the ball. This is my idea. And so uh, he gets all his stuff organized, and he gets set up, and he's ready to go, and he bends over and addresses the ball. And so this is my chance. So I go and put my first ball on the tee, and I go back to take a swing. And I can feel something's off in my backswing. You know how you can feel that? And sometimes you just stop in your backswing. I didn't do that. I thought, here's my chance. He's not looking. I'm going to go for it. And so as the ball, uh, the club hits the ball, I noticed that I didn't quite strike it true, and so instead of going uh, perpendicular to the face of the club and fly, sailing off like it's supposed to, the ball hits off the toe of the club and goes parallel to the face of the club. And I end up hitting the guy right square. 
Well, I'm not sure the most appropriate way to say this in church of where it hit him, but maybe I'll just say if he wasn't wearing pants, I might have gotten a hole in one that day. And so he, uh, so this is what I see. He's addressing, and all of a sudden he does this. He goes, and uh, then he turns and looks back at me with this horrified look on his face like, and he says, well, I never, which by the way, I've only heard people say that in sitcoms. I had never heard anybody use it in normal conversation, but he said, well, I never. And I looked at him and in that moment, I knew I'd been found out, right? I'm not a very good golfer and I knew I'd been found out. And so I knew I had to apologize, even though I really felt like it was his fault because he took the bay right next to me. I knew I had to apologize. And so I looked right at him and I said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> And he grabbed his clubs and he grabbed his balls and he walked all the way to the end of the driving range. And I thought, if you had just done that to begin with, this whole thing would have never happened and I never would have been found out. It's hard when you get found out, isn't it? And sometimes when you get found out, it's hard, but it can be funny. And sometimes when you get found out, when you get caught, it can be tragic or hard. And that's the story we're going to look at today uh, in John chapter 8. We're going to start on verse 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, these verses will be on the side screens. John 8, 2 says this, at dawn, he, this Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She was caught. She was found out. She was trapped. She was caught in her worst moment, in her worst circumstances. And we don't know much about, we don't know her name, we don't know much about her life. All we know was that she made a mistake, and she's been proclaimed guilty by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of the day, the most religious people of the day. But now, she's not the only one to blame, right? As we know, the old saying goes, it takes two to tango. So where's the guy? Where's the man? We don't know. We never see him. The Pharisees don't bother to bring him before Jesus. Uh, they seem to have forgotten all about him. So here she stands alone. I mean, can you just imagine how she must have felt? Alone, betrayed, full of shame, maybe broken. And just put yourself in her shoes for a moment. And maybe you don't have to. Because maybe you've got a moment in your life where you got caught, where you got found out, and you felt the pain. And you felt the sin that was yours. You felt like... Maybe you preferred death to what life felt like in that moment. You think about those times? Here's this woman, and she's standing before Jesus, and she's standing before the religious leaders of the day. And what did they say to Jesus? Look at verse 4. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, the Pharisees... Uh, knew the law, right? They knew the law of Moses. In fact, this law they're quoting comes from Deuteronomy 22, where it says, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So they're bringing this woman before Jesus, along with the law of Moses. Here's the woman. Here's the law. What do you say? Now, this is a terrible punishment, right? This is a horrible punishment to be stoned to death, but that's what the law is. Now, but there's something fishy going on here. I don't know if you can see it or not, but not only is the woman trapped, but these teachers of the law are trying to trap Jesus as well, right? He's, the Pharisees had it out for him. His popularity had been growing. 
He was gaining influence, which meant that they were losing influence, or at least they were threatened to lose influence. And so they're trying to trap Jesus by presenting him these two options. And neither option, by the way, were good ones in their eyes, because uh, the Jewish people living in Israel at the time, which, which Jesus was a part of, they didn't really have, they were under the rule of the Roman Empire. They didn't really have the authority to kill someone, to punish someone that way, unless Rome got involved. So if he says that she should be stoned, well, he's got to go before Rome and make that happen. But on the other hand, if he lets her go, then he's denying the importance of the law of Moses. And the Pharisees understood that any Jew that would deny the law of Moses would lose all their influence and credibility right away. So they think they have Jesus trapped. But fortunately, Jesus is brilliant. And he's not only brilliant, he's also full of love and grace and truth. Look at verse 6. Look at what he does next. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. This is one of my favorite things that Jesus ever did. Like, just picture this moment. These guys come before him, and they are so angry. They're so angry, you can see it in their faces, right? You can hear the accusations flowing out of their lips like spittle. You can see the wrinkles in their weathered foreheads and the sweat dripping down. You can smell it in the heat of their breath. You can look into their eyes and see that they're red with rage, and they are demanding that Jesus make a decision already. But Jesus, seemingly immune to the pressure, what does he do? He takes a knee, and he starts playing in the dirt. And it looks like he's writing something, but we don't know what he's writing. There are some suggestions that have been made over the years that maybe Jesus was wasting time. Maybe he didn't know how he was going to respond, so he had to think. He had to take a moment to just doodle in the dirt, giving the Pharisees a moment to cool off maybe. Maybe it's been suggested that he was uh, pretending not to hear them, so they'd have to repeat themselves. And if he had done that and they had to repeat themselves, he thought maybe that they would hear how ridiculous what they were suggesting sounded. And so maybe that's something. Uh, the, the third suggestion is that some people think he was so overwhelmed with compassion for this woman that he just needed to take a deep breath because he was uh, hurting for her. Still other people suggest that maybe Ju uh, Jesus understood that these men, the accusers, had sin in their lives too. Maybe some of them had mistresses and he was writing their sins in the dirt or doodling the names of their mistresses. We don't know. We don't know what Jesus was writing, but what we know is that what he did worked, especially when he took his next step. Because look at what happens next, verse 7. It says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who was without sin throw the first stone at her. And in the next couple sentences, Jesus is going to share some truths with this woman and with his disciples and with the crowd. And these three truths that he's going to share were uh, so compelling to her that I believe that they changed her life. But they're so compelling to us that I believe they can change our lives too if we take them and apply them to our life. And so I want to share with you that if, if you feel lost or maybe you're struggling in this world, maybe you don't feel the power of God's forgiveness or maybe you once feel like you had God's forgiveness, but now you feel like you're not worthy of it anymore. I want you to know that Jesus is saying these three things to you today too. All right, so he said, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. And then he continues. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time until the older ones, for, uh, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. What I want you to see here is that when Jesus challenged them, 
that anyone without sin could throw the first stone, what happened? They all walked away, all of them. And so the first truth that I think we can apply to our hearts is to know that we're all guilty. We all sin. We've all sinned. We all turned our back on God's ways. Uh, Romans 3.23 says it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All have sinned. You're not alone. It doesn't matter how great or how powerful you think your sin is. It doesn't matter how little or inconsequential you think your sin is. It doesn't even matter if you don't call it sin at all because, friends, we don't get to decide. God has the final say on what sin is because the truth is that all of us fall short of God's standard for our lives. We all have a sin problem. You can turn on the news and you can see a world full of people who have a sin problem, right? You'd look at it and say, Vladimir Putin, that guy has a sin problem. Yes, but Mother Teresa also had a sin problem. I have a sin problem. You have a sin problem. These Pharisees wanted to stone this woman for her sin problem. They wanted to kill her. Again, they were some of the most religious people living in the world at this time. So how did Jesus answer them? He said, fine, go for it. If you're perfect, if you've got no sin in your own life, go ahead, but none could. Every one of them walked away because they were all guilty until the only person left standing with this woman was Jesus, the only one who was worthy to cast the first stone, and he wouldn't. We've all sinned. We're all guilty. That's the first thing I want you to take away. The second thing is this, that there's a way out. There is a way out. That's the good news. This, look how this story goes on. Like verse 9 again says, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Then verse 10 says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now, condemned, that word, you probably recognize that word from real estate or from buildings. If you hear a building's been condemned, it means it's useless, it's empty, uh, it's ready for destruction. And so when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, what he's saying is, I don't see you that way. I don't see you as worthless. I don't see you as empty. I don't, you're not ready for destruction. That's the good news of Easter because Jesus not only looks at this woman and doesn't condemn her, he looks at us, at you and at me, and he says, no matter what your sin, I don't condemn you either. Now, Jesus doesn't want your sin to own you, right? He doesn't want you to carry it around like a burden to determine your future. But the message of Easter is that you aren't condemned for your sin. I'm not condemned for my sin, that you are useful, that your life matters, that you are here for a reason. And yes, each of us has a sin problem. We're all guilty, but the good news of Jesus and the cross and the tomb is that there is a way out. Romans 8 says it this way, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you have made Jesus the center of your life, you are not condemned. Jesus would say the same thing to you, that there is a way out, and his name is Jesus. Jesus died for our sin. He died to do what we could never do for ourselves. And his death means that the punishment for sin, the punishment that we deserve for our sin, has been accounted for. And the good news of Jesus is that when we put our faith and trust in him, his forgiveness and his righteousness is extended for us, to us. It's, a, it's an exchange we make. We give him our sin, our shame, our death, and in return, he gives us his righteousness and his eternal life. It's true. Jesus came for you. He, he lived for you. And for some of you in this room today, that's the only reason you're here today. 
is to hear those words and to know that there is a way out. If you're caught in sin, if you're caught in shame, there's a way out. God's, God's love for you is greater than the, the worst sin that you've ever committed. His grace is bigger than the biggest mistake you'll ever make. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. It doesn't matter how long you've wandered. It doesn't matter what questions you still have in your mind or what thoughts that you say out loud that you maybe shouldn't say out loud. Jesus loves you. He gave up his life for you. And when you surrender your life to him, your sins are forgiven and you become a child of God. You get all of the rights that come with being a child of God. You are given hope for eternity and for the rest of your lives. Isaiah 1, the prophet Isaiah writes it this way. He says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. You know, there is really something pretty amazing about Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb. You know, we're all guilty. We all have a sin problem, but through faith in Jesus, there is a way out. Jesus' death covers all of our sins. He, he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. His death saves us. It rescues us. It frees us. It releases us. But there's something else. There's one more piece to this story that we don't want to miss, that there's something else amazing about Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb. Because as amazing as the cross is, it's nothing without the empty tomb. Hundreds, thousands of people were crucified in ancient Rome. But only one of them came back. Only one was raised from the dead, and that is Jesus. Uh, because if it weren't for the empty tomb, we would have no reason to celebrate today. We'd have no reason to be here. We'd have no reason to keep living. I mean, just as the cross reminds us that there is a way out, the empty tomb is meant to remind us that there is a new way to live. Because there's a way out, Jesus offers this woman a new way to live our lives. Verse eight again, or verse 10 again, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus says, I've saved you. I've freed you. I've redeemed you. You should be dead, but instead you're forgiven. Now it's up to you. Go and leave your life of sin. The fact that Jesus said it, means that we can do it. And it means that we should do it, that we should live for him. We should live different. We should live with things like grace and love and truth. And Jesus invites us into this daily relationship with him that is full of strength and purpose and satisfaction. But he goes on, one more verse I want you to see, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so many people, so many of my friends choose to become followers of Jesus, but they never walk in the light of life because they don't understand the power that the resurrection offers. And so many more never make the choice to follow Jesus because they're afraid of what that light of life looks like. We get too comfortable in our sinful world and our sinful ways, and we don't really want to leave that way and go to something new and something that might be better for us. But 2,000 years ago, the men and women who saw the empty tomb had their lives transformed forever by the power of the resurrection. 18 years ago in Chicago, 47 people had their lives transformed forever through that debate by the power of the resurrection. And today, at Genesis Church across both of our campuses and all of our services, we had 13 people whose lives have been transformed forever that we celebrated through baptism. Now, what about you? 
Are you next? Are you the next one to have your life changed by the power of the resurrection? If you never made that decision to make Jesus the center of your life, I'd love for you to come talk with me after the service. I want to pray with you. I'd love to talk about whatever's happening in your life and help you take that next step into living the light of life. Because there is something powerful. There's something special about Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, hallelujah, it is finished. I'm so thankful for that truth that you came to pay the price that we deserve, that your son Jesus lived a a sinless life, a life that we could never live. And he came and died a sinner's death on a cross, a death that we deserved. But then on the third day that you raised him from the dead and we celebrate that today through Easter. God, we are so thankful that even though we all have sinned, we've all fallen short, that you offer us a way out through the cross and through the tomb, empty tomb, you offer us a new way to live. Lord, we wanna walk in that light. Would you help us as we leave this place, as we go today, even today at Easter, as we celebrate with family and friends or whatever we're doing next, Lord, would you help us to realize and remember that your death paved the way, but it's your resurrection that shows us the way to live a new life. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey friends, thanks so much for joining us today. We love you and we're so thankful to get a worship with you and celebrate Easter with you. Uh, I'll be up here after the service if you need someone to talk to or to pray with, but otherwise, have a great weekend and we'll see you next time. Thanks everybody.